Okay, if we can kind of make our way back into the um, sanctuary, per se. And I'm going to, uh, I'll pray for us again, um, and then I'll read our scripture reading. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. I thank you for um, your uh, providence. I thank you for your mercies. I thank you for getting me here um, safely, God, so that I could um, be back and um, preach this message, God. Um, God, thank you for your timing in all things. Um, Thank you that um, you are a God um, who has a plan and who brings your plan to fruition in your time. Um, We thank you for that, God. Um, We thank you that you are the one who steers the ship and that uh, we can trust that you are good and wise and faithful to do so. Um, As we come into this time of study, um, God, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate what we're about to read, that we would Uh, draw from it what you would have us to um, draw, that we would understand what you would have us to understand. God, that we would see you more clearly, that we would see our own lives more clearly, uh, and that we would understand um, your son and what he has come to do uh, more clearly as well. Uh, We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 27, and we're going to have a long scripture reading. I'm going to go ahead and just read the whole passage up front, uh, but it's kind of a long um, section. Uh, And so we are in Genesis 27. So when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I, might, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young Two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the 
Sorry, I lost my place. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that you that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you really, you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to his father uh, Isaac, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the, son, the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his, Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father." And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. But by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
All right, so um, we, we come to this story, and last week um, Tanner's, Tanner's passage was kind of like a little, uh, little detour around this main character that we're kind of talking about, who is the character of Jacob. We talked about Isaac a little bit, and we, and we didn't go back to the marriage story of Isaac, but Isaac and, and his wife... Rebecca's marriage was literally made in heaven, right? It was a marriage made in heaven. God had led Abraham's servant to her directly in another country. She had a courageously agreed to go to a land that she did not know, um, to marry a man that she did not know. And when they actually met, the, the Bible almost describes it like it was love at first sight, and so the thing is, even though their story starts out that way, we all know that family and marriage can get complicated sometimes, right? Issues begin to arise. Compromises are made. Selfishness starts to creep in. And the Isaac story, and, and I think probably Tanner might have mentioned this last week, the Isaac story is very short compared to the other patriarchs. You have a big section for Abraham, a big section for Jacob, a big section for Joseph, and only like two chapters for Isaac. And that's probably intentional, all right? Um, most con- uh, commentators don't see that as just like an accidental coincidence. It is a judgment on Isaac's life. Um, it is a judgment on the patriarch that says, Saying um, Isaac did not live a life that exemplified the calling that was on his life as the seed um, of Abraham and the promised seed that God had sent. And so as we read those stories of Isaac, one of the few things that we actually find out about him is one um, where Isaac puts Rebekah, his wife, in danger of being assaulted um, much the way Abraham had done. Um, it's interesting how families tend to have these sins that in one generation is scandalous, and then the next generation, uh, that sin seems to be repeated with just a little less fanfare, right? It's almost like we get used to our sins within certain families. And we see that in, in Abraham's family and in Isaac's family. And we're going to see it in different ways as they keep on going through Jacob. And so I want to, again, talk about these, these whole stories, these sort of this, this whole thing, um, both at an anthropological level, a man level, but then also at a redemption history level, right? Talking about the way this story fits into the grander narrative of what God has done in the history of salvation in the world, all right? Um, Jacob was an individual who lived in history, right? Um, and yet he has this huge role in God's story. He has a pivotal role in God's story. And likewise, God is working in all of our stories. And as we said in that first week, two weeks ago, Jacob, Jacob's name is going to change, and it's going to be changed to Israel. And Israel literally means the person who wrestles with God, right? That's what the nation of Israel is. It is these people who are wrestling with God. God's people, we, are people who are wrestling with God. Our lives are characterized, all our lives, by, by struggling against God and God corralling us and, and, and changing us and forming us into the people that he would have us to be. And so we see that going on in this story again. We're going to see that all through Jacob's narrative. Very, very flawed people... And a very, very faithful God. That's what we continue to see. So, now, this marriage between Isaac and, and Rebecca, this, this marriage made in he- heaven, um, has another dysfunction that begins to rise to the surface, and we see it in this passage, and that's favoritism. 
All right, you see favoritism all over this text. Um, Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. And that favoritism becomes the grounds for these massive conflicts that happen in this family line. Right? And so, again, just as Isaac's, uh, Isaac seems to mimic his father's sin, Jacob will imitate his father's favoritism. And, and, and we know that story when we get to the story of, of the, the 12 sons of Jacob, right? And he's got his favorite, Joseph, um, who uh, gets into all kinds of shenanigans, right, because of that favoritism. And so we see this sort of generational sin almost, this repeating of, of behaviors that are, that are made normal. Um, we see that favoritism um, at the beginning, chapter 25, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And so, again, I think favoritism is probably something that many of us can relate to. Because probably in some of our families, we experienced that. And so some of us might have been the favored child. Or for some of us, we might have been the, the, the child that had a hard time connecting. Right? And, and maybe our siblings looked at us as, as, if, as if we were the favored child. Um, the favoritism, though, is, is blatant in some ways, but it's also very nuanced, too. Notice something about the story. No one seems to be talking with each other, right? They're not having family councils. Um, it's these little um, vignettes where there's only like two people uh, in each place. In fact, there are six scenes in this story, if you want to go back and like break it down. And in none of the scenes are there more than two people. It's only, always only two of the people talking to each other throughout um, the process. That's a problem, right? Um, because all of these people are talking against each other and conspiring against each other. Um, you also notice this language of his son, her son, your brother, right? It's not our father. It's not our mother. It's not our children. Um, it's your son and her son and his son in language like that. You see the favoritism in, in all the little nuances of the passage. And so while Jacob's deception in the story is probably the most prominent thing that we notice, it's probably the thing that you remember from, you know, uh, Sunday school when you were a kid and hearing this story and stuff like that, it's not the only issue going on. Um, it's seldom kind of brought to light, but Isaac in this story is probably being deceptive too. He's being sneaky in the way that he gives the blessing to Esau. Okay, and so what we find out is this in in uh, the, the, the culture of the time, like the blessing ceremony was a big deal. It was something that the father did at the end of his life. And he brings the whole family around so that everybody can hear and everybody can see. We actually see this played out in Jacob's story when he's about to die. He brings all of his sons together and blesses them individually. Right. Except what do we see Isaac doing? Isaac sort of says, hey, Esau, go out and catch some food and bring it here. And I'm going to bless you. He doesn't tell anybody else that's going on. Now, why is that exactly? Well, maybe it's because he knows the prophecy that has been um, made, and he wants to do something to try to circumvent it. Um, that even knowing what God has promised about his two sons, he still loves Esau better, and he wants Esau to get the blessing. And so he is going to do something to try um, to accomplish that. 
even though Esau continues to show over and over that he has despised his birthright, right? That he is unworthy of it with the, with the beans incident, the red beans incident that we did two weeks ago. Um, the, the scriptures in these sections tell us about the fact that he, he is marrying these Hittite women who are the local um, pagan women that, uh, that are going to lead him astray ultimately. And so he's doing all these things to um, despise his birthright. And so anyway, Rebecca overhears this conversation between Isaac and Esau, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. She knows what she wants. She wants the blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. And she is willing to do awful things to make sure that she gets what she wants. And so again, you have another character who is presented to us as, as not uh, somebody to be lifted up and, and, and uh, honored in terms of their character and morality or anything, but another very flawed character. She doesn't look like that brave, self-sacrificing young woman that we met who left her family and traveled to another country to marry um, this, this man. But instead, she's conniving, she's disrespectful um, to the role of her husband. And so this deception begins. And so she pitches the idea to Jacob. And Jacob is nervous about it, right? Um, He says, I don't know if this is a great idea, but why is he nervous about it? Not because he has a moral problem against it. Not because his character, you know, he doesn't want to deceive his father. He's like, if he finds this thing out, he's going to curse me. Right. This could be very bad for me if it if if it turns the wrong way. And yet what Rebecca says is is she commands him to do it. Here's a fun little interesting fact. This is the only time in the entire Bible that the word commands is paired with a woman. It's just an interesting little fact. Okay, it's as if to say she herself is usurping the authority that is the natural role of her husband to bless his children, right? And so you could say, Jacob, his name means usurper. Well, he gets it from his mom, okay? Um, she is fulfilling that role of usurper as well in the passage. And so Jacob pretends to be Esau, and he conspires, and he lies, and he misleads a blind old man. His father, no less, he swindles his own brother, which he's already done once, even though Esau was kind of an idiot. Um, And then the coup de grace for the whole thing, verse 20. And Isaac said to him, how is it you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted it to me. I feel dirty after I read that, right? Like you just go, man, how how can you be so brazen to even throw God's name into the mix of this thing? Notice... Um, even Isaac's response um, is a further indictment of how his focus and his obedience have slipped. The way he responds, and, and again, these things are, are subtle, they're nuanced in this passage. So he is blind. Isaac is blind. He's not only blind physically, he's blind spiritually in the passage. Though he hears Jacob's voice, and all throughout the scriptures, hearing is the, is the sense of receiving the word of God, right? We're, all the time we're talking about how God speaks and we listen. We hear the word of God. He hears Jacob's voice, but he doesn't believe it. What does he believe? He believes his taste. 
He believes his touch. He believes his smell. He basically presents himself as a man of the flesh, right? He is a sensual, worldly kind of man, and that's what he focuses on, just like his son, because that's exactly what happened, right, in in the story about the beans. Esau was a sensual man who cared more about his appetites than he did about his birthright. And Isaac is falling into that same kind of category. And so... Jacob deceives his father, the blessing is given, and, and then the whole scene has like this Shakespearean quality to it, doesn't it, right? Like, um, verse 30, it says, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father Isaac, Esau, his brother, came in. Like, I can almost see the scene in a movie, like where Jacob comes out of the tent, and as he's walking off this way, here comes Esau, and he kind of looks back and gives him that gotcha kind of look or whatever. Like, it has this very cinematic quality to the, to the whole thing. Um, And when the deception is discovered, it says that Isaac shook violently, right? He was shaken by this. However, at the same time, there's a sense in the way he responds to it of resignation, right? Sort of like, I guess this is the way things are. Maybe it's because he is committed to the irrevocability of his blessing, Right, because that's the way that culture was. When the father said these things, it was done. Like you couldn't take it back. Um, maybe that's it, but I think probably what it is is this: is that he realizes that God's will has been done despite his efforts to try to circumvent that, and so he's he's just sort of saying, "Your will be done, God. Um, you have kept your promise, even though I tried to do something different." But not Jacob. Jacob is, does not resign himself to these things. Jacob is furious and resentful and will not let the matter lie. And so there at the end, we find out that um, Jacob said, when the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Right. So he said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this while my father is alive, but when my father is dead and the days of mourning for him are over, I'm going to track my brother down and I'm going to murder him. And his response, again, proves that he has despised the blessing that could have been his, at least theoretically. So watch this. Esau plans to murder his brother because his brother has received a blessing from God that Esau feels like he deserves. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Cain, right? Esau is showing that he is not the child of the promise. He's not the child of the seed. He is a descendant of Cain. Um, he is, is following the line of, of this brother murderer. And so all these flaws just keep on falling out throughout the passage. Um, on full display, not just Jacob. Isaac, worldly and weak. Esau, thoughtless and violent. Rebecca, deceptive and manipulative. And Jacob, opportunistic and unprincipled. Each of the characters in their own way, but especially Jacob, seems to be tempted in a way that is similar to the way Abraham, uh, their, their, their father and grandfather Abraham was tempted. In that story that we all know, right? Abraham was promised a child, and yet he and Sarah were getting older and older. And at some point they said, you know what? I, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, and so we're going to take matters into our own hands. And so Sarah gives her, her, her servant, um, Hagar, as a concubine to Abraham, and they have a child, Ishmael, um, through that union. 
Jacob has a promise too, right? The older brother will serve the younger. That's what Jacob has been promised. But like his grandfather, he takes matters into his own hands. And he tries to force God's blessing in a way. And that's one of the things that I want to talk That's That's the main principle, at least on the terms of, of, of the man side of this story, that I want us to think about. Because it is one of the great continual temptations that befall Christians. One of the great wrestlings with God, you could say, that we experience probably every day of our life. And it is to ask this. Do the ends justify the means? Can I do whatever is necessary to get what I think God wants me to have? It's an important question in life. It's an, certainly an important question in leadership. It is a particularly important question in our current political and social climate. Right? Is it justified to manipulate, to coerce, to force, to even sin? To achieve something that we see to be God-given or the greater good. Is it such a bad thing to compromise in one area of life to achieve something that we believe God wants for us? Essentially, we're asking that question of character in all these things. Do I do what I have to do to get what I want? Do I compromise my values to get the spouse I want? Do I compromise my integrity to get the job I want? Do I manipulate others to achieve the goals that I want? You see that in each member of this family, right? And yet the Bible calls us to a costly holiness, right? A holiness that stands even when um, it denies us the things that we want in life. The Christian life calls us to not only want godly things and the things that God has promised, but to want those things in a godly way, to achieve those things in a way that he has uh, sanctified, that he has called us to. So the ends might justify the means if this world is all there is. But if this world is not all there is, if there is a God who knows all hearts and sets all accounts to rights and tests our lives by fire, on the day of judgment, then our means are probably terribly short-sighted, right? Um, We are probably fooling ourselves that the ends justify the means. So speculatively, think about it. What if Jacob had just said, no, I'm not doing it, right? This is wrong. This is sick and twisted. I'm not deceiving my father. I'm not going to do this. Sorry, mom. What would have happened? Obviously, we don't know for sure. Would Isaac have succeeded in giving Esau the blessing? I have to think the answer is no, right? How do we know that? Because God promised that the older would serve the younger. So I don't know what would have happened. Maybe Isaac would have fallen dead before he could do it, or maybe there would have been some other kind of situation that arose. But Isaac... It was going to happen. Jacob didn't have to protect what God had promised him because God is the one who was going to bring that thing to fulfillment. This week when we are, when, when I was at the, the mission trip, the, the guy named Jason, who is the, the head of the school there and, and head of the mission, um, his, his, his series was basically about fighting the fight of faith. 
Um, and he was talking about basically this idea that what it means to fight the fight of faith is to believe and to stake our lives and to stand on the promises that God has made. And so that everything that we do, the way we live out our lives is, is a function of what we know to be true about what God has promised us. Okay. And that's what's missing in this story is, is, is Rebecca and Jacob have a promise from God and yet they feel like they have to cheat and lie and deceive to get it. And yet we know that God is trustworthy. In his promises, he will work those things out um, and bring them to fruition. And so what we really need to do is just lean into those promises. Don't expect what he hasn't promised. Okay, Don't hear me say that. Don't just go home and go, cool, whatever I want, God's going to give it to me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when God has promised, you can trust that God will do that. And you don't have to, you, you don't have to get it by hook or by crook or something. You can trust God in His promises. But also, you know, it's easy to believe that the ends justify the means as long as you're not the means to somebody else's ends, right? Um, it's easy to think that the ends justify the means unless you're the person who got stepped on, unless you're Esau in the story, um, unless you're the one who has been railroaded so that you can't, um, that, that you're, Something is kept from you. And at that point, we realize this isn't godly initiative, right, on the part of Jacob or, or Rebecca. This is just callous self-interest. And guess what? Jacob's going to learn that lesson. Not here. He gets away with it here. But very shortly down the text, we're going to have a story where somebody tricks Jacob. And Jacob is on the wrong side of a deception. And... And he's not gonna, it's, it's, it's not gonna turn out well, but he's gonna learn this lesson as we all have to learn it. And so I think as you, as you listen to it, I mean, it's almost like a classic track, like the story's like archetypal, right? It, it reads almost like it's a Greek play or a fairy tale or something like that, like it's a parable. Um, it, it's, it's so perfect. Um, but it isn't either of those things, right? It is a narrative history. This is something that happened. These were, these were people's lives and these events took place. Um, but they're narrated through the lens of somebody who's trying to get us to learn something from that story. And so it is definitely a tragedy. The whole story is a tragedy, and it's a tragedy for all these characters. Things, again, that you probably just don't even think about or don't notice as you read through the story. Isaac. It's a tragedy for Isaac. Even though he is blind and feeble and thinks he is at the point of death, you know what we find out? Isaac lives another 80 years. Okay? Now, how sick do you got to be where you're like, man, this is it. I'm almost about to go. But then you live in that state for another 80 years. Okay? Um, I, I don't know what Isaac's life was like, but it was probably pretty rough. And that shortness of his story, again, compared to all the other patriarchs, points to a man. I mean, he, he lived another 80 years, and we barely hear about him. Why? Because there's nothing much to tell in the life of Isaac. There's nothing that stands out as something that God says, ooh, look at that. That's, that's something that, that Isaac has done that I want to draw attention to. He just sort of lives his life and passes into obscurity. Rebecca. Rebecca's life is a tragedy. She gets what she wants, right? But her relationship with Esau has to be irreparably destroyed by this incident, right? And what we find out is that Jacob has to flee from the wrath of his brother. And guess what? He never comes home before Rebecca dies. 
Rebecca never sees her beloved son again. He has to run for his life, and she dies before he ever returns home. She won, but it literally cost her everything that she loved. So it reminds you of the passage from, from the New Testament. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Esau, tragic figure, continues to dabble in the things of the world, and though he becomes a great nation, ultimately, just like his father, he lives by his passions. He squanders his life, never taking seriously um, the place that he might have had in God's story, and his descendants become a thorn in in the side of God's people um, for, for years to come. To the best of our knowledge, the book of Genesis is written by Moses as the people of Israel are coming out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, right? Um, and so in that time during the desert, Moses is writing the book along the way somewhere in there. And guess what? In Numbers 20, in that journey, they're coming through that sort of southern Levant um, Northern Arabia kind of area uh, there, and this is this is 400 years after the story we've read tonight. And who does he run into? The Israelites run into the Edomites. They run into the descendants of Esau, and they say, "Hey, cousins, um, is it cool if we pass through your land? Um, we won't disturb anything." And Esau, the Edomites say, "No, you may not." And they're like, no, 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 we're just going to come through. We won't touch anything. And if we, if we eat anything or drink your water, we'll pay for everything. We just want to pass through and get to the promised land. And the Edomites say, if you enter in here, we will kill you. All right? On one side, you can hardly blame them, right? Um, uh, when Jacob makes promises, um, I wouldn't trust him either necessarily. So if these Edomites have any historical remembrance, maybe they say, Jacob's always been somebody who lied to us and cheated us out of our things. Why would we let him in here? And then finally, Jacob, of course. Jacob is is tragic in many ways, and yet at the same time, uh, God is doing something with him, right? God is moving him to a, a crisis situation that happens towards the end of our story that we're going to get to. But Jacob has a whole lot of growing to do before then. A whole lot of encounters, a whole lot of um, things that have to happen. But we notice one interesting little passage. When he says that, that, that icky line um, to his father, he says, the Lord, your God, help me do it, right? He doesn't say the Lord, our God. He doesn't say the Lord, my God. Why is that? I think it's signifying something. Jacob doesn't know God yet. He knows of him. But he is not, certainly not a follower of God. He does not know him personally. And that's really what the whole story of Jacob's wrestling with God is building towards. So again, although the human drama in this story is really compelling, it isn't the only piece of the story. This thing sets up so many more little pieces throughout the scriptures. So in God's providence, um, eventually the Assyrians invade this area of the world. And they invade the land of Edom. Um, Esau's d- d- land and, and, and his descendants. And they rename it to Udemy. Okay, so like Esau, Edom, Udemy. Okay, and then the Romans come in and conquer and they Latinize it and call the land Idiomea. Okay, Idiomea. 2,000 years after this, a descendant of Esau, an Idiomean, would be raised as a Jew and would rise to the Jewish throne. And his name was Herod the Great. And so we're told about the story of the three wise men who come because a king has been born. 
a person who was prophesied, a person who was promised, who would be the object of God's blessing, and who consequently would usurp Herod's family and his line and rule in his place. And so Herod sets out on a murderous rampage to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, hoping by any means necessary to disrupt the plans of God. Right? And we see that theme carried out throughout the whole story. The things that are going on in the beginnings of the Old Testament are the same things that are still playing themselves out even when we come to this, the time of Jesus. You could say old habits die hard for, for the Edomites. But Jacob, not Esau, is the father of the nation of Israel. He's the promised seed. He's the promised one. Um, His line is the promised one that has come from Abraham, that is the chosen stream of blessing and election that is going to culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ and then disseminate to the church. And all those things count their ancestry, not in Esau, but in Jacob. Jacob, the grasper, right? Jacob, the wrestler with God is the descendant of all those people, of us spiritually. And so in some ways, this passage is a culmination of the things that we've looked at in the previous weeks. How we've seen this idea that um, when God says something, he will see it through. And there are all kinds of things that come into your life to mess that up. Man, family tries to mess it up sometimes, and circumstance tries to mess it up, and the world tries to mess it up. And yet what we find over and over again is the sinfulness and foolishness of man, the dysfunction and the squabbling and the grasping that often characterizes our lives, those things can neither accomplish the things of God nor can they deter the things of God. That God is going to do what God is going to do. And so you've got a messed up life, right? Join the club. We all have these things in our lives, but here's what you need to know. God is faithful. God isn't done with any of us, and he will accomplish his plans for our lives. And he will turn, just like he did in this story, he will even turn sin into blessing. He will even turn our mistakes into things that end up bringing us to the place that he would have for us. If God could take the greatest evil of all time, the torture and the murder of his own son, and turn that into the greatest possible blessing that any of us could ever receive, then why do we have anything other than hope that he will continue to work and to mold and to change us in our own lives? That's what I want us to think about as we go into a time of prayer um, and just kind of man, just talk to God about these things. Again, I, I know these these in some ways these principles are a little nebulous, maybe, um, but I think it's something that we all struggle with. Um, these trusting that God is going to do and be who He says He is going to do, who He says He's going to be, and what He says He's going to do. Right? We worry about this with our salvation. We worry about it with our sanctification. We worry about it with our children. We worry about it with the way he is working in our families. We worry about it in all these things. Trust God. Trust that God is working and rest in the salvation that he's brought. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.